1: Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate to become a member now.
2: We talk about food, we talk about music. Snacky too.
3: If somebody
4: Welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. That was just Pepina, who will be live in studio later today. First off, Chef Norberto Piattoni. <laughs> Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Hi, Greg. Thank Hi. you for how having are you? me. Yes. How are you doing today? I'm pretty well. You got
5: started cooking early uh, on your grandfather's farm. Uh, yes. Practically, I started to, to learn about food production and cooking uh, since early age with my grandfather. He was a really good cook and farmer, so I learned a lot of stuff. What type of farm was it? It was a general farm, produced chickens, uh, some cows, and vegetables in general. What would he cook for you, or what would he call from the farm to cook for
4: dinner that you still carry with you to this day? What dish would be emblematic?
5: His his best dish uh, is make paellas with, with chicken. Really? Yeah, he learned how to do paella from some Spanish people who... Immigrate to Argentina in the north in Corrientes, and then he will make the amazing paellas and all these classic dishes with tripe and beans and kind of old-school uh, cooking from Argentina.
4: What is the absolute secret for making a good paella or make your grandfather's
5: paella? Um, cure the the pan very well, season it pretty well, and then just do it in an open fire. Mm. Uh, he always eat it in in the garden with a little fire Underneath, and that was the secret, I think.
4: Was there a task that you had to work up to? Like you couldn't stir the rice until you watched to make it a 100 times or you couldn't add it? What, what was the big benchmark for you?
5: Practically, yes, the rice. Get to the point uh, where you have that crispy layer of rice in the bottom of the paella. That is the difficult part of, of making a paella, basically. So simple, but so many times. So many times you have to do it to get it right, because it's about timing, water. and the, the path to food was not
4: totally obvious, though. You studied chemical engineering. How did you end up on that path, and how
5: did you get back to food? I'm, I like pretty much and enjoy studying mathematics, physics, and chemics to try to understand process. Uh, so when I finished high school, um, I was between cooking and between studying chemical engineer. Um, chemical engineering was something a little bit more interesting by then Uh, also for my family Uh, and then I decided to to get into university school and study chemical engineer for six years Uh, and then work for a year in a gelatin factory where we did gelatin from cow skin Mm. Um, after a year being there I wasn't feeling in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> not not exactly as inspiring as grandfather's open-fire paella. No, completely not. So basically, I decided just to, to move on and do what I really like to do, then is cook for people and, and seeing the feeling of people eating.
4: You mentioned that you like the study of process and, and physics. How did that factor into the type of cooking that you are doing and how you ended up working with uh, Francis
5: Malman? Um, I think... Studying all that chemical engineer and, and and all all different process make you understand um, the process of cooking and also the the, the process of prepping stuff for 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 cooking. So basically, it's always systems. Then we make everything work uh, better. So basically, I think you adapt all that uh, theory of how to speed up and how to make process faster to get to the point that you want. Do you obsess over stop gaps? Do you try to find you know, the
4: bottleneck in the process and get that better and then get the other one? Yeah, Con- constantly <laughs> kind of seeing what is the best way to, to do it. Uh, so you in 2005, Francis Maumann uh, had you come cook at 1884. What was it like working with him? Where did you start to learn there? How did, how did you begin to evolve as a chef under his tutelage?
5: Um, basically, I was lucky to get there uh, from some friends who I, who I was working in a little town in Mendoza in Argentina. I got in touch with with Francis' team in Mendoza. I was uh, invited to to Stash for a few months. Um, And then working there, since I arrived first day, I was in charge of the grill of Parisha, the fire cooking. Um, And I started to learn a lot of things about um, how to work a professional restaurant and professional kitchen and a whole team uh, and about the service and data that's over there. Basically a fine dining restaurant, um, And then I got invited to, to come to Uruguay to work with him for a summer, uh, and after spending a few months over there, become the head chef and I stay for, for four seasons. Day one, Francis Mallman working the grill. did you feel absolutely confident or totally nervous? I'm kind of I was feeling pretty confident uh, I have a lot of experience cooking with, with fire prior to, to start to work with him. Argentina is a place where you grow grown up basically seeing your family your grandfather, your friends any large party format somebody will be grilling something also every Sunday you will be grilling meats with your family in your house that is kind of classic um, so basically you have experience if you like cooking you have all the experience cooking with fire so it was a little bit more nervous about the uh, to get in there and to to get uh, involved with the process of the restaurant. Not so nervous about the cooking part. Mm. What did you feel the biggest takeaway
4: from working under him and for those four seasons, outside of uh, growing your cooking your culinary skills? What were the things that he learned about running the restaurant that you carried with you from
5: there? It's just uh, his philosophy of, of of work and and look for talented people. Um, a lot of freedom to to interpret what what you can create um, I take away a lot of um, professional work in the kitchen too, how to how how to <clears throat> manage kitchen how to be a head chef uh, It was my first step doing that over there, so I take a lot of experience um working in large formats events too mm. uh, and also uh, perfection a little bit more, all my skills in, in fire cooking, understand a little bit more process from where come the techniques that he used all in, back in the day with gauchos and tribes was living in Argentina, and how basically you can see the mix of that techniques with then the immigrants from Italy then came with regular kind of Italian grill techniques too.
4: What's a key mistake that people make when they're doing large formats? when translating from cooking for four people to, to 400? What is it, an easy trip up that people don't tend to think about in the in their early uh, execution? I don't know.
5: Probably the ordering of food, <laughs> the amount of food. they always under order. You under order or, or too much, mm-hmm. you know. You know, sometimes you get scared about how many people, and you think, oh, my God, it's like 1,000 people is going to eat this. I have to order so much food. And then in the end, you always order a little bit too much. <laughs> like we're
4: going to need 4,000 chickens.
5: Yeah. It's only 1,000 people. We're going to need 4,000 chickens. Mm-hmm. The, anyways, you make numbers and uh, say, yeah, 4, 000, <laughs> four, 400 chickens, 500 pounds of this and the other one. And then you put all together. and just.
4: So from there, you went to Paris, Kentucky to open an Argentine restaurant. But also equally, you ended up at Bar Tartine, yes. which ended up being super influ- influential. Can you talk about your experience there, some of the things you took away from there? I know you worked a lot with national fermentation as well. So,
5: definitely, partartini was um, a huge influence and a huge inspiration for me um, to see a completely different way of, of cooking, preserving. I I got in touch with preserving, again, with my, my, my grandfather. I remember him putting olives in salt water, let it there for a few months, and then eat it. Then, uh, understanding that, that it's just a lacto-fermented process, then I wasn't able to understand before. Uh, so, definitely, in Bartartin seeing all this process and all the processes they made in the house and cheese and see all the different ways in you can preserve food to a future use, uh, I think that is, was the biggest influence and I took from there and opened all my cooking style and everything in, in kind of to appreciate and also think about safe uh, vegetables and, and stuff. They are in season right now to so a future use when, when you don't have uh, stuff around.
4: Right, especially when you're pulling from the environment, how to stretch the ingredients, stretch the season, make sure that everything lasts a little bit longer.
5: Yeah. Com- who, who doesn't like some
4: fresh blueberries that were frozen and preserved in the winter that mm-hmm. have a little taste of summer?
5: Yeah, completely. Um, one of the things we did in, in the restaurant is just preserve some corn, serve it like a few months later. And people mm-hmm. were like, how is it possible you serve it corn and now? It's like, yeah, it was just preserved a few months before. Mm. From there, you went to
4: work uh, some Mr. Chow pop-ups in Venice, which sounded pretty amazing, some open-air cooking. Can you describe
5: the, the setting and, and what the dinners were like? Yeah, so my, my good friend Max, uh, who uh, is uh, Michael's son uh, from, from Mr. Chow, um, we will just get together in Venice Beach, uh, find this, this place. in It's called Riot. It's a new place. Um, so basically, we did a setup in the garden. They have like a little backyard, uh, and we created a menu. Uh, and we just cook over there, have some guests, uh, make some really cool space in in, in a warehouse, uh, put some tables. And we play around. We tried to make paella once, and it wasn't that uh, successful as we expect. Your grandfather <laughs> was just shaking his head. Yeah,
4: I, I I believe so, yeah. And then from there, before you opened Meta, you worked uh, at Metrograph, designing the, the menu for there. Uh, for those people who don't know, Metrograph is this beautiful new theater that opened a, a couple of years ago in uh, in New York. What type of thinking goes into the menu for what pa- pairs well before seeing a
5: movie? Or did you have to adjust the menu at all? Basically, they came, they came out with this idea of the commissary kitchen. Then it was in L.A., in, in, in a movie studio. Um, they have this old classic menu with different influences, like French Italian cuisine, um, and they kind of had the idea already of have that kind of style of menu. So just I helped them to to develop that idea and get a, a more um, modern, a little bit a more mm. accurate menu for for the times that we live right now. And just put some ingredients, try to to do it. But basically, already they have the the whole. The whole idea of the menu, they were just trying to copy that commissary kitchen that exists before in, a, in a movies.
4: Uh, we're going to take a quick musical break. Yep. And then we are going to come back and talk about Meta, your yes. new restaurant in Fort Greene, super exciting. We're going to play a quick track from the archives, and then we'll be back here on Snacky Tunes.
6: Was something familiar, like the sound of the sea. I forgot I remembered, like some lost part of me. It was only a flicker. It was bad. But I know we're alone, and my mind clings to memory like a heart to a home. Reflections at sundown can make me so sad, for there's no
4: You met your partner, Henry Rich, in 2016. Henry owns Rucola, June Wine Bar, Fitzcarraldo, which is one of my favorite restaurants. So cool. Yeah. Such good food. How did the partnership come about? What was the concept that you came with together? How did Meta become into being?
5: So basically, I met Henry uh, cooking at Pioneer Works uh, in Red Hook. Love Dustin. OK. I was doing some pop-ups there. Uh, I cooked uh, two years ago for the first time in Pioneer Works. A uh, really good friend of Gabe. Um, so I did this pop-up, and uh, Henry was there for that mm. dinner. He's a really good friend of Gabe. So Gabe asked who was the guy who's cooking. Uh, he introduced us. Uh, and after that, uh, we started to talk a little bit about restaurants, food. And he told me, hey, I have this corner in Fort Green." Uh, then I got, I think, in an open restaurant. I don't have the concept yet. I like the food that you do. So uh, we started to talk about it. And we become the, we with this idea together. Uh, the idea of the open fire kitchen definitely come from, from Argentina and from South America. Uh, and with his, uh, his help, we was able to, to put uh, this open kitchen uh, in the restaurant. Then we had the people from home studio design it. Uh, and then it was just try to, to feed our restaurant in the neighborhood, and it looked pretty pretty cool, beautiful, all those brownstone houses. Um, and that's how we create, basically.
4: And it seems like a marriage between your preservation that you learned at Bar 13 and then the work that you learned under Chef Malman and your Argentine words Preservation, open air, uh, really interesting pairing of the, the two processes to make pretty unique food.
5: Yeah, and basically, if you go back, is the first uh, techniques that people use it uh, to cook. Just when e- electricity and fire it wasn't available, uh, uh, sorry, electricity and gas it wasn't available. People it was cooking uh, with fire. I use the techniques to save products for drying, a- dry aged meats, uh, preserve vegetables and all the stuff. So it's putting together two old techniques and create an, an a particular. Very primal, very elemental. Very elemental.
4: And also it's interesting, you designed the kitchen yourself. It was a unique design. Can you talk a little
5: bit about what you have installed in there and some of the uh, contraptions that you're working with? Yeah, so basically what I created is a kind of classic elemental uh, Argentine uh, heart uh, where you have a fire basket uh, where you burn the wood uh, What that basket gives you is just uh, hot coals after the the, the wood is burned. Uh, And then when those uh, hot coals uh, drop down to the floor, you just move it around. And to your left, you have a classic parilla or grill uh, in Argentina where you put uh, coals underneath and you use the radiant heat for cooking. Uh, To the right side, you have a a flat top or plancha uh, where you also move coals, put fire underneath, and burn stuff, cook flatbread, um, use it for different uh, cooking styles. Uh, and then we have a whole structure um, where we hang chickens, pork butts, uh, lamb legs. And basically, we slow roasted the stuff for six, seven hours. Uh, then, then we, we cut in steaks and serve uh, in the menu.
4: Mm, it sounds amazing. <laughs> you also have a zero carbon footprint. Which is super interesting. Or a near approach
5: to that. Near approach to that. I, 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 I don't believe that you can be zero. Sure. I mean, uh, but you can be closer to or do your best, definitely. The food still gets delivered on trucks
4: and you have no idea for you know, all those things. What is the approach to that and, and how do you get close to zero carbon footprint? What In, in the kitchen, and the, the steps, and the processes
5: that you have? It's, it's, it's a long uh, journey to get into the point that you um, don't produce any carbon. Uh, footprint, but um, definitely working with local farmers and, and getting all local products uh, helps a lot. Um, also, have a whole program of recycling and, and, and compost and garbage. Uh, but basically, all what we use at Meta is East Coast uh, from the beef, the fish, uh, the vegetables, the oils, the grains. Uh, we basically don't use. I would say we use colatura da lice from Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it's one of like ingredients that we like a lot. Uh, but the oils that we use come from Vermont, uh, the grains, the flowers then we use come from everything from upstate, also the beef and everything. So I think uh, trying to keep it as close as the restaurant possible in all the production and all the products that come from, uh, that helps a lot. One of the
4: other things that is really good is the wine program that you have. Uh, it was developed by your partner. Yes. Can you talk about his approach? Uh, I know it's a lot of natural wines that pairs well with it, but what was he thinking
5: uh, as he was selecting the wines for the new concept? Uh, basically, like you say, he have this rest, uh, this uh, wine bar called June. Uh, they have this cult of like natural fermented wines. Um, definitely... When, when we start this project have a lot of sense because we're using all this lacto-fermented and natural fermented process to, to for the menu, for the food and having um, all these wines uh, goes married pretty well with the food because they are both wild, they are all basic techniques and techniques uh, it seems in both the cooking and the wine, it's as little
4: human interaction as possible. Just let the ingredients speak for itself, let the, let the wine speak for itself. Just to, You're just helping it along just enough to get it to a point where people can consume it, but just
5: everything else is hands off. Yeah, I think that is our uh, ethos. That is how we like to, for people, and also we think it's one of the healthiest way to, to, to eat, to drink, when they have, have less human intervention. Uh, And more natural are the vegetables and everything.
4: And you also have a strong non-alcoholic program as well, which I always appreciate for the people who don't drink but still don't want to just have a
5: soda or soda water. How did that develop and how does that pair with the food? Um, Basically, um, I quit drinking over a year ago. So um, I introduced myself to different uh, drink sodas uh, and also studying a little bit more about use of medicines like roots, ashwagandha, campaigns. Uh, and all these roots and plants are pretty beneficial for your health. So for me, it was really important to have an option for people who doesn't drink, because I would like to go to a place where I have options uh, if you don't drink. So we started to care the. Um, the program for there, uh, with some friends from Grace, uh, she owns a stand in the farmer's market called uh, Fornach Creek Farm. Mm. Uh, she grows ashwagandha, campaign, marshmallow roots, tulsi, borage, and a lot of wonderful herbs Then are pretty pretty healthy. So putting that things together, talking with her a little bit, and being worried about being healthy and not drinking, uh, we create this a soda program also I'm serving there some uh, rye cabas then it's made with, for the guys from Enlightenment Wines and Honeys here in Bushwick mm. uh, so basically I'm serving some of the cabas and that there too amazing yeah
4: last thing great playlist when you walk in how do you curate the music for the restaurant what are you going to think of? What, what pairs well with elemental cooking and
5: uh, natural wines um uh, um, definitely, we, we, I, I bought a record player for the restaurant. We don't install it yet. <laughs> uh, I'm, so we just curating, it uh, depends of the vibe, the day, uh, the weekend. Uh, we have some people from the restaurant uh, making playlists too. So we switch a little bit, depends on the vibe. Uh, definitely some days we play. The last two days we was playing a lot of reggae and dab. Uh, because it's summertime. Mm-hmm. It was chill. We have the windows open. Um, sometimes we play more like rock and roll or blues. So it depends the vibe that we have o- over there. Uh, I think as wild you go with music, better, better go with the wild mu- uh, food and wine. <laughs> <laughs> Good enough. Well, Chef, thank you for
4: coming by today. Where can people find information on the restaurant, find information about you,
5: website, Instagram? Uh, website, Instagram, Meta, uh, BK. Uh, is the website is informations about the menu. Our uh, website is pretty primal too. Um, <laughs> we try to keep it everything uh, pretty pretty primal. That's uh, how we like it to do it. And then yes, uh, Instagram uh, for the restaurant. I have an Instagram. Don't use it anymore.
4: Fair enough. You're <laughs> in the kitchen. Well, yeah. thank you so much for coming by. We're gonna take another quick musical break, play a track from the archives, and then we're we'll back with Pepina live in studio here on Snacky Tunes <laughs>
2: Sometimes
1: This program is brought to you by Chef's Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chef's Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chef's Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters,
4: Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. That was just Liam Finn. If you like that, check out our archives on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to subscribe. And if you're over there, please make sure to leave us a review and a rating. We would really appreciate it. Pepina. Hey. Welcome to Snacky Tunes.
7: Thank you so much for having me Happy release week. Yeah, thank you. It's very exciting.
4: We're going to get to that in a second. But first, you grew up in Helsinki. Yes, Helsinki, Finland. Trained as a classical... Flutist. Flutist. Yes. How long were you able to sustain that before you told your parents, I gotta change the instrument?
7: <laughs> um, they kind of knew, um, I started playing the flute when I was seven, but then I got my first piano when I was 10 and they really saw the difference of me playing contemporary music and me playing classical music. It was really, I was just playing to please my teacher when I played the flute and when I played the piano, it was just for myself.
4: Very alive. Yeah. Were you, were you a good student though?
7: I was I was I was a very good student and my teacher was a very good teacher in a way that every time if I would learn something we would just right away move into a new thing like I always felt like I never felt like I was a good flutist because we never stayed where I was comfortable mm. but that also meant that I learned really quickly and I got really good but it also kind of took a lot of the joy away from it so
4: You couldn't just have a good week. You couldn't be like, oh, I crushed this. I'm just going to play this for a week and then come in and and like, nope, on to the next thing.
7: It was really You're an absolute failure
4: all the time (laughs) at everything.
7: That's how I felt for like 10 years. And then on the very last year when I was um, more into like making music and I was kind of realizing that, hey, like maybe I could use flute in my music. And it was the first time that I looked at it differently. And I kind of realized that, wow, like. I'm a decent player, but I le- I realized it too late and I'm still not playing flute at my shows. One day I will, though. Really? It
4: hasn't <laughs> it hasn't made it back.
7: It hasn't made it back. I, I still I still hear my teacher's voice in the back of my head like there's only one way to play it and it's the right or the wrong way, you know, like and if it's anything in between, it's wrong.
4: Is that true about the flute? That there's only one way to play it?
7: No, it's not. There's no <laughs> one way to play any instrument, but it's just the world of classical music. You learn You have to learn how to recreate something that's already done so in that way yeah there is only one way to recreate something but yeah i'm i'm definitely gonna bring it back one One day day. yeah like like two eps
4: from now it's gonna be all flute all flute all flute (laughs) and you heard it here first that's a promise
7: (laughs) it's a promise
4: you moved over to piano did when did you start writing songs for yourself
7: Around that time. So, well, actually, there is proof that I was writing songs before that. My mom actually has this little tiny piece of paper from when I was six years old, and I wrote down, like, a melody. And I was like, Mom, I wrote a song. And she still has that little piece of paper. So it's been just always a part of what I do is creating melodies. But when I got my piano at the age of 10, it was suddenly not just melodies. It was harmonies. It was, like, this whole world that you could just create. And I would just... I wouldn't really learn how to play songs. I was just listening to what I was playing and basically just started writing instrumental music right away.
4: When did you feel that you wrote your first good song?
7: Oh, I don't know about that. Good is such a relative term because I actually do remember one of the first songs that I wrote. I think I was 11 or something, and it was just a really simple piano piece. And I still revisit it. I think that was a good song. Press one out the gate. Well, it wasn't the first one, but it was definitely, like, one of the first. And its I think it's all relative. Like, if I would write that today, I would think that, oh, like, it's boring, it's not complex enough, oh, it doesn't have these and this and that. But because I was 11 when I wrote it, like, that was really good for an 11-year-old. <laughs>
4: When did you start to develop the style that you consider what you're playing now? How many years did that that take?
7: Oh, well, I'm still in development 100%. I hope that I'm going to keep on developing my style till the end. I would never want to find what I that, oh, this is what I'm going to do now. Um, but this specific thing, I'm, I would say that it started um, when I first came to New York three years ago, and I made my first EP and that was the first time i was really introduced to how the music industry really works like outside of your bedroom and how you know music outside pro- of helsinki <laughs> exactly and how like music is actually produced and what goes into it and you know how pop music is written like of course there there's no one way to write something but i just learned a lot and i think you know ever since then i've been just learning 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 and i'm really excited about this new release cuz it definitely is step to the right direction. I just want to keep going to that direction. Can we hear a song? Yes, you can.
4: What are you going to play for us first?
7: We're going to play a song from the EP. Um, it's called Against the Grain. One, two,
3: a girl next door back then She didn't know how to fit in And everyone kept telling her Don't talk back, don't ask us why Just sit down quietly and smile Better to be seen than her What
4: You've been dubbed the queen of Sundance.
7: <laughs> yes.
4: How does one Apparently. get that title?
7: Um, I don't know how official that <laughs> title is, but... I see you
4: brought your crown. <laughs> <laughs>
7: yes. No, I uh, i have performed there four times now. Um, I think that might add to it just the quantity of performances. Um, it really, Sundance has played a big role in my whole career as a musician.
4: How did you get involved with them? Uh it's not always so well known for music. I know there are showcases for licensing and for, for for that, but obviously, it's known for film. How did you end up there four years ago? What is the setting for your performances, and, and how has it really influenced your career?
7: Yeah, so actually, the first time I performed there, um, it it was because my whole career started out of uploading music online to this platform called HitRecord, um, and they started a TV show called He'd Record on TV that was uh, premiering at Sundance that year. And I had been basically just uploading music online from my bedroom, not really thinking too much of it. Um, And yeah, the site was founded by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And then he just calls me up and says that, hey, we want you to come to perform. Um,
4: Classic yeah, it's JGL just phone call. Exactly,
7: yeah. it just happens. It's the, that's the way to do it. Like, that's my tip to everybody: just yeah. get, that, get that phone call. No, but um, and then you're fine. And then you're fine. Yeah, then yeah. you're fine. Yeah. Then it's done. That's Did you get it. the call.
4: Get the call. Then you're fine. Exactly.
7: <laughs> but yeah, he he called me up, and I flew to Sundance to perform at the premiere party because it was premiering there, and uh, and that's really what I, I was there just for two nights. It was a crazy trip. I performed just one song on on a piano, and my now manager and lawyer Stephen Beer happened to be in the audience, and just gave afterwards and gave me his card and said that hey, like I like what you're doing. Let's see if we can collaborate, and then we just started talking over email and we skyped, and he said that you know if you want, I can help you, you know, network in New York. I can help you, you know, set you up with a team, and we can make your first EP here, if that's what you want. So that was really just the first step, the first step that brought me to U.S., New York specifically, and, and yeah, and then the year after that, Stephen is also hosting a New York lounge at the Sundance Film Festival, so I came there and I was performing just five nights in a row at his event, and uh, and this one person, Maury Levovitz, happened to be in the audience, who later on became my sponsor who later on became uh the founder and owner of my now label honey rose records um and then the year after that i was there again and this time that was the craziest one i was the first person ever to open for the new music venue bass camp um i was performing at multiple venues there and parties and yeah with sundance Because it all happens in such a small space. It's like, you just never know who you're going to meet there. Mm. It's really friendly and really great. And I've I've always just met the really key people to my career there.
4: The interesting thing about Honey Rose Records, which is your label, is that it is from Park City and it is all about getting artists who play Park City or Sundance and getting them on a a record label, which is such a unique response to all the musicians that come to town during that time.
7: Well, that's the thing. like Sundance and Park City, it's just... It has a very specific vibe, it's just so welcoming, and you really don't know, like, whoever could be walking, you know, on the street, whoever could come to your show. And it's like, the audiences are not big in numbers, but they're, like, big in who is there.
4: (laughs) Yes. It's uh, quality, not quantity. Yes. Can we hear another song?
7: Yes, for sure.
4: What are you going to play for us?
7: Uh, This one is called What Does It Take, also from the EP.
3: What does it take for us to see our way across the line? What does it take to make it clear we don't know how to turn back? time. What can I say? You keep on feeding me the same old lies. What does it take for you to stop pretending that your hands are tied? You say that we are done that it's already gone.
4: this past Friday. Congratulations. Thank you. What was the process into this record? It's very evolved sound. It's a a lot of growth from the last one. What what changed from the previous EPs upon making this one?
7: So one big thing that changed that was that I actually knew what I was getting into because I had never, (laughs) well, because I had never produced or like been a part of producing anything before Uh, when I was making my first EP I I had just written songs in my bedroom and then recorded them like guitar vocals so I didn't really know what it meant to build a production but getting into this one I was really heavily involved like every and we really layered it out like I, I was working with the producer Charles Newman and we really laid it out like one layer by layer like went through like the melodies and the you know sounds together and i really was able to leave my mark to it like all the way through um another thing was that this time i was maybe i was maybe less trying to please everyone like you know I, I, with the with the first record I, I, by the way i'm really proud of that record and i love it but with the lyrics of it i was kind of like softer on the edges like i had messages but i was trying to put them through in a way that everybody would approve and everybody would be happy with. And I'm still like, I'm still not like doing anything too revolutionary. Like, I'm not upsetting anybody, but I really, I really had strong visions of what I want to tell people. And I wasn't thinking too much of like the way of saying it. So it was all much clearer in my head. What's one
4: of the messages that you really feel came across in this EP?
7: I think... Is one of the big ones. It's like just dare to be strong and dare to be powerful and like find that strength in you. And being strong and being powerful doesn't mean that you have to like uh, shout it out or like be just a jerk about it. <laughs> like being strong is also being able to show that you're weak and just kind of like the different different sides of being strong. and. It's just so important to me, especially knowing that my audience is probably more on the younger side, probably more, you know, speaks to a lot of women. And I just always think, like, what would I want to tell myself when I when I was 13 or what would I want to tell my 10 year old cousin? Like, what are the things that I really want to want them to know. And one thing is that you can be strong and you can be loud and you can do whatever you want.
4: Also give up the flute, take up the piano. (laughs)
7: Yes. No, the flute was really good. And you're going to be really, really happy one day that you did take those 11 years of learning it.
4: (laughs) One of the coolest songs or inspirations against the grain is about uh, female comic book writers. Yes. Which is really awesome.
7: No, I actually, I saw this amazing documentary called she makes comics um, and I kind of knew that they were looking for, you know, ending title song, and I was just so inspired. It was just this. I, I love comics. I love that that whole world. Like, I'm.
4: <laughs> what, do you, what do you read?
7: Um, I know all these names in Finnish, so that's
4: fine. Call it out. Yeah. Yeah.
7: I like Lassie and Levi, which is like the little little boy and the. Uh, tiger toy, I don't know. And Oh, Calvin uh, and Hobbes. Yes, Calvin and Hobbes.
4: Okay, I can translate for you. Yes.
7: <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I really, I loved comics and, uh, and I did, like, growing up, in my family, I never felt that it was, like, was not a girl thing to do, but I did feel really awkward entering a comic store or, you know, just, like, talking about it to anyone other than my brother, because it, it did feel like I don't know about it enough that it's okay to like it mm-hmm.
4: and you also do you draw as well
7: i do yeah and
4: what type of drawings do you do and how does that tie into it
7: oh well it 100 ties into it I actually like drawing has always been one of my big passions um i i also read manga a lot as a, as a teenager as, as a lot of us do and uh i drew that for a while and then i just kind of turned more into the Exactly like Calvin and Hobbes, have like comic strip type of drawing where you can just kind of like exaggerate certain parts of the body to like express the emotion that you want. I really love that kind of really simplistic drawing. Um, Yeah, I love that.
4: Well, we want to make sure we have time for one more song. Where can people find the EP, find out where you're playing? Do you have any upcoming, I know you had a release party this past weekend, but any yeah. future coming sh- upcoming shows?
7: Uh, we don't have any dates confirmed yet, but you should definitely go to my website, pepinamusic.com, to find out any future dates. And the EP Spark is available on iTunes and Spotify and Google Play and Amazon and wherever you, where, pick your poison, like whichever you want to consume.
4: Well, thank you for coming on.
7: Thank you so much for having me here.
4: Big shout out to Chef Piatoni for coming by. Uh, make sure to check out Meta. We are going to be off next week because David the Engineer says no shows on July 4th weekend. So <laughs> we <don't> have- <laughs> 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 But we'll be back in a couple weeks um, and we'll be doing a whole new episode of Snacky Tunes. What's the name of the song you're going to take us out with?
7: I'm going to take us out with Fire.
4: Perfect. Thank you for listening and we'll see you in a couple weeks.
3: It's not that easy to be one of us But speaking up seems so dangerous You shut it down, you shut the Keep your body fighting through the mess that's in your head
7: All in your head